Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon, and today we're with Shauna Gunnarsson, who is an alumni of the Hope Street Group and also a Konawaina middle school teacher on Hawaii Island. Shauna, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. So, Shauna, we're doing a kind of a new format, which uh, I'm calling 10 Questions. Um, and so it's going to be 10 questions for Shauna Gunnarsson, and we're going to launch right into question number one. So question number one is, you have a Bachelor's of Science in Anthropology from University of California at Riverside. I know a number of educators, chief among them my uh, beloved nephew, Evan Beachy, who majored in and loved anthropology. So the question is, what view of the world and humans did that degree give you? And in what ways has it influenced your life since 2001? And I'm going to tack on a, a slight addendum to that. And, and so, by the way, I'm like super interested in your experience at your field school, mm-hmm. Quintana Roo in Mexico. So there you go. Wow, that was that is a loaded question if I have ever heard one. There's a lot of <laughs> things to digest and and think about what I need to say that's important here. Okay. Um, in terms of my degree in anthropology and my view of the world, um, I think that this idea of globalization and the idea that I was a very sheltered person in my growing up and realizing suddenly when I was in college because I was, I was very sheltered all the way through my school experience. I lived in a bubble, I think, um, from my perspective. When I arrived in college, suddenly there was this diversity of ideas. And I thought that I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a very young child. And suddenly I realized there were so many other things I was interested in and I had tracked myself and I had been very disciplined and I knew that that was what I wanted. And suddenly I had this moment of doubt where I was not studying animals, but I was looking around at all of the people that I was sitting in class with and I was realizing, wow, there are all these amazing stories. Um, And not just the amazing stories of the people I was sitting with, but the amazing stories of all of these civilizations and people that came before us. And humanity took on this whole other level of importance to me. Uh, Whereas I was not just a human person trying to strive for myself, all of a sudden I was representing all of the people that came before me. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I came to Hawaii, I immediately connected with that idea of ancestry Mm. and um, learning forward, mentoring, and and the way of learning uh, that is embraced here. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that through my study of anthropology uh, was so amazing to me. And it, it just drew me. It, that, that major just drew, it sucked me right in. Uh, and my field school was a transformative moment in my educational process because it was that hands-on mm. thing where I felt as an adult for the first time I was a part of a team I was working together. I knew what we were trying to accomplish. Uh, We were mapping an ancient archaeological site. And so it 
it sounds very romantic. <laughs> it was really hard work in the hot sun every day. We were covered with ash. They had burned off the cane fields where we were working. Um, but the camaraderie uh, that we experienced together out there trying to accomplish this goal and all of us having our expertise and our pieces that we were bringing together, it was it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And that included cooking, cleaning house. It, it was everything all together. We were very isolated out in the field together. Um, but I would never have given up that experience. It was it was an incredible one. Sometimes I think, Shauna, that um, I'm, I'm definitely a person who's opposed to mandates in general. I'm mm -hmm. just not a fan of mandates. But I, I often think that the elements of anthropology woven into school all the way through school mm -hmm. is a good thing. It's always a good thing when we do that, right? Yes. I. That's my, it's my heart. It's where I want people to focus their energy in terms of seeing that we are not just this little piece. We are part of this chain that goes forward and backward. And we all need to work to strengthen the chain because what we do now is going to make it either better or mm. um, I'm, right. I'm really not that person who looks forward and says we could make it worse, but we need to make it better. Right. We need to make that chain really strong and, and great. Um, in the future. Awesome. So question number two. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely, wow, uh, via your resume, I learned since way back that you've been a teacher, mentor, guide, coach, sponsor, professional learning community developer, a constructor of constructive classroom conversations, mm -hmm. the works. And you also listed online coursework in constructive classroom conversations at Stanford, DataWise, at Harvard X, Data Science, and at Microsoft. So the question is, what's the secret sauce to getting teachers out of their classroom silos and collaborating and or learning from each other? Josh, that's a great question. And I was thinking about it on the plane over this morning because I had a great conversation with one of my mentors uh, yesterday at school, because we all have mentors. Um, and I was really struggling with something that was happening at our school. And I really needed to just kind of vent and talk with someone else um, about some siloing that was happening and how do we how do we adjust this? And I think the secret sauce is providing that magic concoction of structure and allowing people to have those conversations. So we assume that people can have these conversations together, mm. but it's probably the hardest part that that collaboration piece is probably the hardest part of our job as educators professionally with each other. And some of us are even teaching that in the classroom, but we don't necessarily apply those structures and tools that we use to teach our students how to have a collaborative conversation to our own work as professionals in a professional learning community and creating those agreements. I'm thinking now um, about Buck Institute or you said PBL Works mm -hmm. and some of their rubrics for how do you how do you begin this work? Okay, well, we need to have agreements with each other. We need to know what the goal is. Mm -hmm. And I think often in, as educators, we we don't use those structures for ourselves to have those meaningful conversations. And I think that um, relationship building where we we begin with the goal and agreements of what how we're gonna work together, that's that's the magic sauce. Mm -hmm. We're human, we need to do these human things together before we can move on to the content. Mm -hmm. And I think that's universal. Uh, regardless of what the content is, we need to have those structures in place. So I think I think that's it. Being intentional about the structure. So protocols can be a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Oh wow. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It, in some ways, that was my liberation as a teacher. My my moment where I flipped from a closed mindset to a growth mindset was through the protocols, which provide that kind of structure and safety, mm -hmm. but also open you up to multiple perspectives from the people who are part of the protocol. And it sounds like that's what you're referencing. Absolutely. Um, I was so fortunate to go through the Teacher Leader Academy here in the state of Hawaii mm -hmm. with one of my mentors, uh, mm -hmm. Sandy Camelli. And we developed a literacy, I don't 
don't know, professional development for our whole campus as a part of our experience through Teacher Leader Academy. And one of the things I very clearly remember about that was that we were very intentional about introducing those protocols and having those structured discussions. And mm -hmm. that was part of the success of that. So, right. yes. And protocols have to be practiced. They're not something it's like if you're going to be a basketball player, you don't just walk onto the court and start being a Michael Jordan. You Especially to... if you're me, but okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, point, point taken, right? Okay. Okay. So, so Shauna, question number three. You have a master's in special education mm -hmm. from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Riffing off of the title of Ted Dintersmith's book, What School Could Be, uh, which is also the inspiration for this podcast, the question is, what could special education be? What is the best of the best of special education in your experience? It is education that includes those students in our community, whether that is a community at our school, which is our real community that our students experience every day, or whether or not it is the community where they're walking down the street or working in the future, they have to be included in the community. And it has to be intentional on our part to develop structures and systems that support them in that so that they can experience success. And I want students with special needs to have a vibrant life. Mm. And I want them to envision that life and tell us about what they want. Um, one of the most powerful experiences that I ever had as a special educator was doing a process called MAPS um, with my students and their families and our educational team. and. One of the questions I will never forget asking was to the student, what is your dream? What is your dream for the future? Mm -hmm. And the student said, I want to be a marine biologist. I want to get married. I want to have a family. And everyone's jaw just dropped at the table. No one had ever asked this 12-year-old student what their dream was. Right. And how can you support someone in their dream if you don't ask those questions. And so I want, I want our students to be heard, all of them. Um, so I guess I want for them what I want for all of our students. So what I'm hearing loud and clear is special education students need to be asked the important questions just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. And I want project-based learning for them. I want experiences for them. Um, I think that by talking about them as a subgroup, it might be helpful to talk about people as groups, but we write individualized education plans for them. They're individuals first. And right. I feel very, very strongly about that. Mm. I just want to share a quick story with you before we move on to question number four. Um, I had an extraordinary conversation with a really extraordinary person last week. Um, her name is Sherry. Um, she's a SPED or special education mm -hmm. teacher at a high school here on Oahu. And um, what she described to me just kind of blew me away. Um, basically, what she's doing on her campus is she's building a print shop, meaning a full-blown graphics print shop. Like, imagine merging together Kinko's and the whole copying and graphics center with a graphic design center. I mean, the works, wow. right? A full-blown print shop that would service all of campus and potentially the community itself. And the kids that would be operating and learning that in, in that print shop were her sped kids. And that just knocked me out. And the, the next day, wow. the, yeah, the next Great. day she actually brought those 12 kids to meet me. I didn't even know that they were coming. Um, and it was an extraordinary moment where I got to meet them. And so what you, what you say about asking them, like, what do you care about? What mm -hmm. do you want to do um, is critical to that process. It feels like we can do amazing things. Amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. The okay. potential of people is boundless. Boundless. Yes. Awesome. Question number four. Um, you listed civics, government, geography, history, language, arts, mathematics, and science as coursework that you have taught in grades five through nine. So here's my question. Take us through special moments in your classrooms where you succeeded in engaging your students in relevant learning Moments where they were pumped up about being with you and in a community of learners. I'm going to immediately jump back to when we have conversations and when those conversations are student driven. And it could be about a problem that students are experiencing, sometimes just stopping class and saying, okay, I can tell that something is up. What 
let's have a structured discussion about what's happening and can we do anything about it and do we need to just move on? Is there someone we need to talk to about this? Can we bring in someone to help us with it? That's a real authentic conversation. And I think the respect that students feel when you recognize, first of all, something's going on and then give them the time to process, it empowers them to do that in their own life. And they can take that and generalize that outside of school. They can generalize it in another classroom. Um, and I think that's just an amazing experience. So again, I'm going to lift it out of the content um, of all of those different subject areas that you can be highly qualified to teach. It doesn't really have to do necessarily with the content, but it's that pedagogy that you keep going back to that. How do we teach this? How do we get there with our students? And I think those conversations, uh, those moments where we have conversations. And then I also want to say I'm a middle school teacher. Mm. And when students are allowed to create something that genuinely belongs to them, that they have fully uh, dreamt of it from the ground up, you you give them, you say, okay, here's this little seed. You guys water it until it becomes whatever you want. Sometimes middle school students will grow the purple people eater monster machine flower thing that flies around like a helicopter. <laughs> That's the plant they want to grow, but it's wonderful. And to watch them become alive as a result of their creativity and just having all these different tools at their disposal, hmm. it's incredible. It's great. So student agency is the is one of the secret sauces the secret of kids sauce, yes. being pumped up when they come to school. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So we're going to switch directions just a little bit in question number five. Um, when I arrived at the University of Iowa in 1990 as an older student, quote unquote, at the age of 32. So I, I went to college right out of high school, totally wasted a year in college, mm-hmm. didn't do much, played rugby, drank a lot of beer. Um, but didn't study a lick, um, and then had a career as a chef and then as a hotel manager, and then ultimately went back to school at age 32 to finish the undergrad that I had not gotten. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, So when I arrived at University of Iowa, um, the campus was in the middle of a very difficult Board of Regents-mandated push towards multiculturalism. And for this 90% Caucasian Midwestern university, at times the process seemed incredibly painful and mm-hmm. awkward, especially to this kid from Hawaii who'd come from a, you know, a, sometimes it's cliche, but from a very multicultural environment. So what is multiculturalism to you and where in education have you seen the best expressions of it? Ooh. Multiculturalism is accepting um, what people are, what they say they are, who they are. Um, And I think as we have, you know, I kind of broke my teeth on multiculturalism with maybe in the late 90s. uh, We started to be talking about that in my education classes. And so when you talk about multiculturalism, I want to go there, but I think it has evolved. And um, one of my favorite... Uh, I don't know, proponents for multicultural education and cultural awareness in education is Paulo Freire. Uh, This amazingly inspirational person who you would need a dictionary to read some of his writing. It's um, quite hefty um, in its content, but he really says that we need to evolve with our thinking. Like we can't just say multiculturalism is this one thing because now we have LGBTQT, and we have uh, different aspects of culture that were not a part of that discussion. And I think that 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 is multiculturalism, is accepting and inviting other points of view as we're discussing, because if we do not put that out there concretely, then we're making assumptions and that can be very dangerous to our conversations and how we're going to move forward together. We can't really move forward together unless we put a label on um, these assumptions that we have 
these kind of this baggage that we're always carrying around with us. We all have that. And so we need to just be really aware mm-hmm. of it. We need to be uh, thinking about that as we're moving along in our discussions. And to me, that's what multiculturalism is, is being aware mm-hmm. that there are other points of view all around us and we need to be aware of our own points of view and how that might influence and interact with um, who is the dominant person in the relationship and whose idea is better. Mm. It it doesn't lead to a productive conversation or a conversation that's going to change anything if one person is not taking into account the other person's so, where they're at. So follow-up question then. Mm. Are we in your experience here in our public schools in the state of Hawaii, Mm -hmm. are we sometimes maybe too cavalier about the need to address the issues of multiculturalism because we assume that everybody's multicultural here and that we've all got it kind of wired? Um, We still need to to do what you're describing. Absolutely. Intentionally. Can I give you an example? Perfect. Um, So as you know, on the Big Island right now, we have a bit of controversy going on. And I'm I shouldn't say a bit of controversy. It's a very serious issue. It is. um, With the telescope that is proposed to be built on Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. And I have some eighth grade students that would really like to dig into this issue. And we have skirted around it a bit. But it comes out because it's on their mind. It's right there on top of what they want to talk about and they want to think about. And so recently one of our students um, had the opportunity to do a little mini research project and they took the bull by the horns and they advocated for themselves and they said, I want to do my project on this. And when they were presenting, um, one of the other students kind of in an offhand way said, well, maybe those people who are saying that they should build the telescope, maybe they've never had anything sacred in their life. And so they just say it's fine to that, I feel sorry for them. And they said it kind of in that way. It was, it mm-hmm. was disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that student was expecting me to stop the conversation and say, what if I were a person who wanted to have a telescope there? I do have things that are very sacred to me in my life. And what you just said might have really hurt me. And I think that Yes, we do have a very multicultural society that we're living in, but we need to all be aware of all of these different points of view that people are bringing, and we have to be um, careful not to um, hurt people or make assumptions about groups of people. Hmm. Um, It's the ongoing practice of humanity. It's the ongoing practice of humanity. We just really can't move forward. Mm -hmm. If there's that adversarial um, point of view for both coming from a closed mindset, then no, no, we can't walk forward together. Right. Awesome. Everybody, we're going to take a short break and come back with more from Shauna Gunnarsson. So stay with us. Our specialty is providing cultural-based programming to learn technology and computer science. We are always looking for teachers, volunteers, and schools to partner with. But our programs aren't only for Keiki. Heard of the Purple Prize? We're accepting applications now for Kamaka Inana, a design and venture ideation program for adults interested in creating solutions that positively impact the Pai Aina. It's about shaping the way Hawaii designs for the future. Visit us at purplemaia or purpleprize.com for more info. Also, how major is this podcast? Keep up the good work, guys. This is Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. Hey everyone, we're back with Shauna Gunnarsson, an epic educator on the Kona side of Hawaii Island. So Shauna, we're going to leap to question number six. So you tagged along with your mom as she moved to Hawaii mm -hmm. Island uh, to um, Holualoa to retire, and you found yourself drawn into special education. So my question is, you've written that this was a super significant moment in your life. Um, so what was that journey of discovery where one chapter of your life came to a close and another began? Hmm. So I think I mentioned uh, earlier that I was a pretty sheltered person, and I had the great benefit to have a lot of amazing friends in college, and I started to kind of understand what it meant to um, meet other people and um, do different things in life. But when I came to Hawaii, suddenly I was really actually living independently and experiencing different people in a real life kind of context, not, not college. College is this construct that we have probably needs to have a little adjustment. Absolutely. I, we could, Thank we could you. talk about the whole idea of college should be like your mission, like where you discover your mission. Yeah. I think I just read an article in the New York Times about Actually, that. Actually, I tweeted about that okay. two days ago, yes. <laughs> that college I should be about missions. I may on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, not, not majors, but missions. But missions. Absolutely. Um, and so I knew that my mission after completing college was to save the world. This was what I was going to do. Um, all by myself. No, I'm just kidding. I, other people needed to be involved. Um, so I came to Hawaii thinking I was going to help my mother get adjusted to moving into her house. And then I was going to go back to California and finish my, my master's degree in educational foundations, multiculturalism. And I just discovered that Hawaii was my place that spoke to me. And I mentioned about, um, the feeling of multi-generational family that yeah. is here in Hawaii. It is how I grew up. And when, so my family is from central California. That's how I grew up. My family was multi-generational grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, all living in the same house, running back and forth between the houses on the same street. Um, it was an amazing, um, childhood that I was blessed to have. And when I lived in Los Angeles uh, with my family, and we moved quite a bit when I was a kid. Um, I lived in Alaska, I lived in Connecticut for a little while, and then returned to spend a, the bulk of my educational years in Los Angeles. That was nowhere to be found in my friends' families, in the communities um, where I was living at that time. I'm sure it existed in Los Angeles, of course. It's an amazing, amazing place. Um, but I was not experiencing that there. And when I came to Hawaii, all of a sudden it was there in front of me again. And I knew that this was where I needed to be. Wow. Marvelous to see that yes. right in front of you like that. And it, and it felt like when I was reading this in your personal statement, that this really was a moment where you recognized that there was something that was closing and something that was opening mm -hmm. at the same time. What was that like? So I really believe in this idea of pivotal moments in life. And sometimes there are just moments. And if we can put a pin in them, that's great. And sometimes we can't do it until way in the future, or, you know, way later in our life, we realize, oh mm. my gosh, that happened to me. And that's why all of these other things, that's why I made these decisions that I made. Um, and I don't know if at that time I knew mm. that that was happening to me. I think I was just like, what am I going to do now? I have to make a decision. Um, do I want to leave Hawaii? No, I belong I belong in this place. I need to be here in this place. And I happen to be working in a third grade uh, classroom for students with special needs. And I realized this is one of those places where I can have that leverage and do the work, go to my job every day mm. and love it, mm. love it. 
Love you, watching those children smile and engage with each other, with me, um, helping to guide them mm-hmm. where they need to go. And then later, uh, as I evolved in my career, being able to guide other beginning educators to find that joy and that passion in coming to work every day. And when they're not having a great time, because as we know, as a beginning teacher, it is a struggle. There are tears. It is very difficult to begin this career. Um, There are so many initiatives and things that we have to buffer ourselves against. Um, And until you find that path where you're you're strong and you're moving forward, Mm. it can feel like you're just getting beaten uh, from all sides. To help other beginning educators find that is also something that I grew into. Mm. So it started with loving guiding the students, but it grew into so much more than that. And becoming Mm. a leader, not just in the classroom, but at the school level, Mm. it's amazing. Um, I actually remember really clearly as a young history teacher um, going through a pivotal moment when I discovered what a pivotal moment Mm. actually is. And it was kind of funny because I was doing some work in anthropology in my getting ready to teach history. And I came across this super essential question. It had to do with Captain Cook and the moment that he set foot on the earth at Kealakekua Bay, that historians and anthropologists call that a liminal moment, that the world changed Mm. in that moment. Had he not stepped out of the boat onto the land, had he stayed in the boat and left, that at that point things would have remained likely the same. And um, so that pivotal moment understanding kind of blew my mind. And at that point, I started paying very close attention to those kinds of pivotal moments that happen in history and in life. And I'm just thinking that you also do that personally for yourself and that you think about that also for your kids in your classrooms as well. So that's a kind of a segue to question number seven. So talk to our listeners about your mentor teachers, and I'm referencing Sandy Camelli, mm. Colleen uh, Mats- uh, Masukawa, uh, Georgia Goes, is I'm, am I saying that right? Goes, Goes. Mm-hmm. Goes, and your principal, Nancy Soderberg. I think my question is, what do these people mean to you, and what do, what do we need to know about their skills and habits and dispositions, their heads and their hearts? So I'll put it out there that these individuals um, have impacted so many people um, beyond myself. And so to watch them, um, to have them be my mentor and give me advice when I need it, and to be honest, as we all have realized as we go through life, sometimes being a mentor is you just are a really patient listener. Right. And I feel like all of those individuals were very patient listeners as I was trying to problem solve and bite these chunks of things that were troubling me. They were giving me a glass of water when I needed it and they were helping me digest and and do the things that I needed to do. Um, And that was very formative for me as an educator. Um, They set the tone. They set the example. They had urgency. They wanted me to have agency they want students to have agency and create uh, more than what is needed. Um, and I'm thinking of Georgia Goez right now. Um, so many interdisciplinary projects came from this woman's amazing brain. She had students pretending that they were going through Ellis Island and lining up and some students would pretend to be asking the questions and writing down people's names. What's your name? And they would write it down and they would hand them the thing. Okay, take this to the next station. And the kids would be like, you spelled my name wrong. Go, oh, we don't really care about that. You just keep going. It was real. Wow. It was real Ellis Island for these students. And I remember some of them were so shocked. We had to just literally, we're like, okay, you can't have a breakdown right here. We're just going to move you off just like it would be at Ellis Island. We're going to put you in this holding area. And then we would just forget about these students in the holding area for you know, 20 minutes and they would be over there. Hey, I'm over here. Well, you just pipe down over there. This is Ellis Island. And that's how we deal with people here. We, we are coming to the United States. You're welcome. Uh, stand in line, get used to this right. <laughs> procedure that we have now. Um, and I'll, I'll never, I was just a beginning teacher at that time. I remember her, um, standing in front of her ELA class and she said, we're going to do some writing right now. 
it's going to be amazing. You guys are going to write, and we're going to just write for 10 minutes. And one of the kids, you could hear it audibly in the back, oh, we have to write for 10 minutes. And she said, okay. She grabbed this wicker basket off of her desk, and she said, if your hand falls off, I will just come around with this basket. We'll put the hand in there. We'll keep it until the end of class. <laughs> so I think also having a sense of humor and dealing right. with uh, and realizing the particular age group of middle school students that we were working with, um, they just taught me that resilience and relationship building with those students. And it seems to me like in order for them to be who they became to you, mm. you would have to have a growth mindset. You would have to be open to the ideas that they might present to you. Yes, you want them to be good listeners and to kind of follow what you're doing. But at the same time, when an idea is presented, if you don't have a growth mindset, if you're not a limitless mind, you're close to those kinds of ideas. And the idea that she presented to you must have just been like you were ready to absorb that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, when I started out uh, in my education career, I was one of those very strange situations where after one year of being a teacher uh, at my school, everyone else in my department left. And I was the senior member of our special education department. And that made me the department head, which mm -hmm. was hilarious because I knew nothing. Um, I was just getting my master's degree. I wasn't even a certified teacher. And that mentorship that they provided for me was super, super needed uh, and valuable to me. But I, I felt like I had all of the book learning and I had a lot of those words and phrases and I could know the law and all of those things. But they taught me the nuances and they taught me how the real world actually worked and helped me navigate that in a very powerful way. Right. Um, so awesome. yes, absolutely amazing people. Okay, so question number eight. Eventually, developing a special education program led to some fatigue, right? Yes. Um, and you were tired, which you're completely justified in feeling. <laughs> um, but you made another leap to the position of technology coordinator. And at the same time, you began teaching AVID students, um, AVID. Mm -hmm. AVID stands for, for all our listeners? Advancement via individual determination. Got it. So my question is, why was this such an important dual track moment in your life as an educator? So AVID is the toolkit and those skills that this program called AVID uh, introduced me to were those best practices that I didn't realize had all of these different labels. They were all of these tools like having a conversation, getting organized, those skills that students need in order to be successful in all of the other areas of their academic career. And I don't think until I went to the AVID conference completely by surprise when my principal said, you're going to this. And I said, oh, goody, another initiative. I can't wait. Because um, I'm not usually that person um, who loves initiatives or uh, the newest fad. But AVID really changed my thinking. And becoming an AVID teacher uh, allowed me to dig deeper with my students and go beyond the content that I might have been teaching, it allowed me to ask the questions, but it also helped me to see for probably the first time that I needed to teach my students to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. And that was really the fulcrum where I started to have my students be metacognitive about their learning and start to dig into, wait, why are we doing this? Wait, what are we doing in class today? And it's halfway through class. What do you mean, what are we doing in class today? Well, I, why didn't you write this in your, why didn't you write what you did in science class in your planner? And they would say, oh, well, I, I don't know. I forgot to look up at the board to see what we did in class, so now I can't write, I can't put that in my planner. And I said, you went to science class, though. What did you do in class? And there was just that beautiful silence where you realize that students need to be able to think about why they're in school and what are they doing and what is the intention behind that. And I know that as teachers, we've gone through a lot of training about putting the standard on the board and the I can statement and the students will be able to, and all of those things that I completely agree, it sets students up for success. If they know where they're going, they need to have a goal. 
but also from the other end to give some of that responsibility back to students to say, what are you learning about and why is it important? Um, because mm -hmm. my least favorite thing to hear students say is, I'm bored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take an abrupt, abrupt left turn. Uh-oh. I can gonna, handle it. I can handle it. You can handle Did it. Did I mention right? I'm a middle school teacher? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Actually, we're going to talk about goats. Oh, no. Um, so question number nine. I feel like I knew this was coming. Yeah, okay. you, yeah. Okay. Well, you gave me the material. It's an to, important part of my life. Very much. Okay. So I'm sure this is going to come as a surprise to our podcast listeners, but you and your mom started something near Kona called the Dancing Goat Sanctuary. Yes. I'm going to read your mission statement that mm. I found on your Dancing Goat Sanctuary website. So, quote, our mission at Dancing Goat Sanctuary is to create a place where goats can live peacefully with the benefit of a proper diet and health care. Educate the public about the physical, social, and emotional needs of goats and other small farm animals, including sheep, geese, pigs, and chickens and place eligible animals in homes where, as pets, they will live out the rest of their lives. So here's my question. Okay, so knock me over with a feather, <laughs> but because I had no idea and didn't see this one coming mm. at all. But what do we need to know more about in terms of the Dancing Goat Sanctuary? Um, and what is it about this place that's so special to you? Hmm. Um, so one thing I haven't talked a lot about, um, although it is core to my daily existence as I get up in the morning, um, I believe that we need a more compassionate world and, Ooh, don't make me cry, Josh. Um, I think that many of the injustices that we have in the past visited upon each other as humans, um, we visit that with animals now. And our sanctuary is a place where people can come to discover the emotional lives of animals. Sorry. It's very important to me. And I think that by being more human toward animals and growing that part of our human psyche, that we can be more compassionate to each other in our decision making. So if I were a kid <laughs> coming on a field trip or on a specific project-based yes. trip to the Dancing Goat Sanctuary, mm -hmm. just kind of briefly walk our, our radio audience through what the look and sound and feel of this place is as I come onto your, your animal campus. Okay. <laughs> um, so we don't rescue dogs any longer or cats, um, but we do have what we call our legacy dogs. So we have seven dogs and you will be greeted by a cacophony of dog. Um, we call it the doggy doorbell as you drive in um, and park. I want to be one of those dogs on your <laughs> sanctuary. Like when I retire, may I turn into a dog and please be at your sanctuary. That would be great. Um, and then you'll hear the honking of geese because the geese are also a kind of alarm that goes off when a strange vehicle pulls into the parking lot. They can hear the different tires of different vehicles. They'll recognize that it's not a regular car that comes um, to the farm. And um, you'll be greeted by our, I don't know, what should I call them? Our ambassadors, uh, Starsky and Hutch. Okay. They're two very ridiculous goats. They're kind of like frat boys. So if they were people, they would be college age uh, men who have some pizza stashed under their bed for a snack later. Are they thinking about starting a social network that will <laughs> blow up into Facebook? I've thought about getting onto social media with something of this nature, but, um, you know, I have to uh, avoid uh, being a mile wide and an inch deep sometimes. And so um, really our core mission is to provide the best home for those animals mm. that we can. Um, and then to also bring others into that experience that you're talking about of walking in and seeing the interactions between Starsky Hutch and their penmate Starina and watching as um, Mufi, one of our newest sheep, he will come running up to the gate because his family recently, um, recently turned him over to us uh, because of a situation over which they had no control. He's a wonderful, friendly guy. 
And he just, he's looking for them. Every time someone comes to the gate, he comes running up and he checks to see, oh, it's wow. just you guys again. Um, but they do come to visit him. So that's amazing and wonderful. Yeah. Um, and so I think just creating that place where people can see the social interactions that animals have with us. Yes, that's really important. But animals have their own social life. And I think that in today's fast paced society, and even though I'm a computer teacher and I teach about technology, I always go back to that idea that by carefully observing our environment and the interactions of everything around us and how we are interacting and being metacognitive about that, we're going to we're going to make progress and we're going to be better as a result of that. I can only imagine how you navigate your super intense, busy life as a teacher at tech, all the things that you're doing and the sanctuary. In all seriousness, mm -hmm. that's a... Um, most people have one life, and it appears like this is two. Um, it's a team effort. My mom is an amazing um, human being. Her name is Maria, and she is that strong person who has demonstrated by doing, not by saying what's going to happen, but she just she just does it. And sometimes, you know, that is a frustrating thing as a daughter to have that as the example in life because the bar is very high yeah. all of the time. Right. But it's amazing That's to have her as a partner in running the sanctuary. Um, she is the organizational queen of that, and I get to be the organizational queen of my classroom, and so we find a, a great balance there. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, Shauna, we've come down to question number 10. Dun, dun, dun. It, it, it's shot by so quick today. Um, so finally, I want to blend two questions together to end this episode. I always ask guests, or as much as possible I do this, I ask guests, what could school be? Because it's a riff off of the title of the book and, and of the podcast itself. So that's one. But today, I want to honor the career of recently retired complex area superintendent mm. Art, um, Art Souza by placing him into that equation that is your answer. In other words, in what ways did he make a mark on your sense of what school could be? You would think that was a really difficult question, but it's not. Art Souza helped us through many different processes in our district to come to that place where I think now most of the DOE is that we need to design the schools that our students need. And through bringing um, Tony Wagner to come and work with our um, West Hawaii school um, complex area and bringing us this idea of instructional leadership teams where teachers have that opportunity to discuss um, what they're doing in class and have discussions about what happens next, uh, what do we need to prioritize at our school and really design, not projects, but problem-solving experiences within their school mm -hmm. to address what we all know. We can, put it, we can put our fingers on it and we know, but having that collective discussion of, okay, here it is, how are we gonna attack this? And whether it's student attendance or whether or not it's literacy or math literacy or technology integration, whatever that issue or problem is, having the ability to have a K-12 conversation about what are we all going to do to have collective impact on this issue, mm. it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, and we were ahead of our time as a district, I think, because of his leadership and his insight into the fact that it doesn't lie in some kind of thing from outside that we're going to buy from someone or get from somewhere. We're gonna create this ourselves. We have the collective knowledge to solve this problem. So let's do it. That was great. So what I'm pulling from this is that where we used to think that in public schools that are separated as elementary, mm -hmm. middle, and high school, that that K-12 continuum conversation is almost impossible because they exist as different schools, that in fact, when you have a visionary complex area superintendent, you can have that conversation about what a K-12 experience is. And that's what art brought to the table. Yes, 
we had common language that we could use together as we were having those discussions. We clearly share the same students from the same families. Um, and so it made it obvious to us that this is what schools could be. It can be that they arrive in a kindergarten classroom and matriculate all the way up to high school. And hopefully now we're really starting the conversation with our community college, Paula Manui yeah, in West absolutely. Hawaii, mm -hmm. to be able to not just make it K-12, but we're even going up into the sky, who knows, uh, and including industry in that conversation also. So it's evolving even beyond um, the K-12, but really starting to think about how can community partners come in and um, art uh, develop this concept of hokupa'a and this strong star that is going to guide us is our students and their experience. Mm. And how do we all line up together to support that? And that's a powerful vision. You, you mentioned a vision, that is, that is it. How do we follow that strong star? Because mm -hmm. that is why we're here. Shauna Gunnarsson from the Konawina Middle School and also a Hope Street group. It's been really awesome having you on this podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. It's been great. Welcome back to season one, semester two of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, February 22nd. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode is the student managing director, May Kanata, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed. <laughs>